Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. All right, so welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we have a big group of people uh, talking about the one thing that pretty much everybody's talking about right now, which is the COVID-19 pandemic and how we should appropriately respond to it. I think the best thing is to let each of you introduce yourselves. So uh, why don't we start off with, uh, with Jason and then, and then we'll go Chris, Eric and Eric. Cool. I'm Jason Brennan. I'm the Robert Jane Elizabeth Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at Georgetown University. I'm Chris. I'm Chris Serpredon. I'm a Professor of Philosophy at the University of New Orleans, where I also direct our Urban Entrepreneurship and Policy Institute and the University Honors Program. And uh, Eric Segay. Hey, I'm Eric Segay, uh, producer of the Likeville Podcast. Uh, just a quick disclaimer, we are over Zoom today, so this will be a little bit of a different Likeville episode from the ones we record in the studio with the pristine audio quality that we usually strive for, but I hope everybody can be forgiving of whatever technical issues or clipping happens on this episode. Okay, and Eric the second. Yeah, I'm uh, Eric Winsberg. I'm professor of philosophy at the University of South Florida, and I'm currently visiting the Institute of Practical Ethics at the University of California, San Diego. Awesome. So I guess we'll just uh, jump right in. I mean, the issue that we're, well, everybody's facing this right now, but we're facing right now here in the province of Quebec in Canada is uh, the premier of our province, sort of the, I guess, the equivalent of your governors in the States, um, has decided to uh, reopen the province. And what's interesting about Quebec is that Quebec was the first to close everything down, and it's the first to open everything up. Now, our premier claims that um, in both instances, he was basically performing a kind of a, a Bayesian calculation of calculating risk and that at the time uh, closing things down was the best call in terms of risk 
And now, given what we know about the all the costs associated with the quarantine, all of the side effects associated with the quarantine, how much it's uh, impacting everything from substance abuse to domestic violence to tanking our economy to increasing levels of depression, anxiety, suicide, uh, all these things, that given what we now know about how long this is going to be going for and uh, that the right call now is to reopen. Now he he was attacked at in the first instance for jumping the gun and being too extreme, and now of course he's being attacked uh, for the same thing. So I mean, it, this is what's happening right here in Montreal. But I understand that this these basic questions are the same everywhere. So I'm wondering. I mean, what do what do all of all of y'all think about this? Well, we should all jump in at once, I guess. Um, I'll, yep. I'll take a first stab at it. You know, I, I'm not, I, I think there's like a real difficulty in assessing policy here. Um, if you start with the assumption that like every single policy is like has an equal justificatory burden, then it's really hard to justify one set of policies over another because there's um, tremendous uncertainty, uh, tremendous problems with the quality of the data. It's really difficult, and I think Eric will speak a lot to, to that point later, but it's really difficult to do a good cost-benefit analysis of any particular policy because we don't really have the information we need to do very rigorous work on that. But uh, one thing that I think the three of us stress is that, you know, not all policies are kind of equal uh, when it comes to, like, justification. Uh, instead, there's sort of a presumption in favor of having things be open rather than closed and having people have civil liberties not suppressed rather than to be suppressed and having uh, more freedom rather than less and to taking kind of the minimal amount of um, restrictions for the minimal amount of time to accomplish various ends. So in other words, uh, to put it more bluntly, restrictions have to be justified and opening doesn't really have to be justified in the same way. And when you think of it that way, then that's when some of the uncertainty starts to weigh in favor of opening rather than keeping it closed. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the analogy that the premier made, which a lot of people jumped on him for is he said, well, lots of people die in roadway accidents. And if we wanted to have, uh, you know, triple or quadruple the size of the police force. And if we reduce the speed limit uh, by half of what it presently is, we could probably decrease roadway deaths dramatically but it would also just slow our entire society down to such an extent and it would be so expensive that it's not worth it and so you could say that we i mean if you wanted to be really cynical like babylon b had that wonderful uh translator that jason shared the other day like where oh you want people to die right so you could say that by not making those changes to our uh, to our highway system and our roadways that we are consigning thousands of people each year to death. Um, but that's, you know, that's a very uncharitable way of looking at it. It's more that we're just making a cost benefit analysis on openness versus safety. Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite philosophers that maybe doesn't get enough credit as he should is a guy named Sven Olson who has a really good set of papers on the question of risk and thinking about risk from government policy. He says that like uh, what you want is a system where you have an equitable amount of risk that's kind of spread equitably and everyone who sort of participates in that system benefits from the risk. And so when he, when he looks at the question of say, 
why don't we have even safer auto- automobile restrictions then you can say like look it's true that like 50,000 people are well not this year i guess in the us but in, in generally in a normal year in the united states you're going to get about 50,000 people dying in a car accident uh but if you try to make things even more restrictive it'll come at the cost of a bunch of other invisible things harder to detect things that also reduce their welfare and we know like the system of risk that's involved with automobile accidents is one where everyone kind of incurs it equally it's not really biased in an unfair way against one group or another but the other thing about automobile accidents is that we just have really good data about what the risks are we have good data about if we instantiate like a new regulation will that actually save lives or not um and even sometimes that's pretty difficult like there's this case in india recently where um there's this kind of like zero star very unsafe car that was being sold there and the government ended up pushing it down because uh they said well this is such an unsafe car that people shouldn't drive it but the problem was it was a substitute for riding on a motorcycle which is even less dangerous or is even more dangerous so even in this case like regulation uh didn't have the effect that people had anticipated it pushed them to do something less safe rather than more safe but that said at least when it comes to automobiles we have such tremendously good data and so much of it and we can run these little experiments that we have a pretty good sense of whether a, a particular regulation someone has in mind is actually going to improve the public welfare or not. Uh, with the case of COVID, we are, we're taking all these shots in the dark. Like no one really knows what the hell they're talking about, but we're making massive policy changes on the basis of very poor information. Sorry. I, I mostly agree with what Jason says. I mean, I do think we, we do have a poverty of information about this. Um, uh, I haven't, I, I grew up in Montreal. I haven't really followed, Quebec politics since since Rene Levesque was premier, but um, but it sounds like you, your uh, your premier is being pretty sensible about this. Um, I think it was reasonable early on to be uh, to be fairly cautious. I mean, what we were seeing coming out of China and coming out of uh, Lombardy and Italy looked pretty alarming. Uh, the idea of protecting the uh, the hospital system, protecting the healthcare system. Uh, when we didn't know if maybe this virus had a 3% fatality rate and a 10 to 12% hospitalization rate, uh, it was maybe reasonable to just preemptively in the absence of, as, you know, as Jason said, and really the absence of really knowing what was going on, it might've been perfectly reasonable to be precautionary. Um, but, uh, but I think now we know that in most places, the hospital systems are not being, uh, overwhelmed. Uh, in fact, most hospitals, I know in California, there are a lot of mostly empty hospitals. I don't know how things are in Montreal right now. Um, and so one thing I think we do know is that um, the the measures that we're having in most places are stronger than they need to be to protect the healthcare system. And it's not clear really what other benefit people think that the lockdowns are going to have in the long run. Um, I think one thing that's becoming perfectly clear, and this is, you know, again, we don't really need to have good knowledge to do cost benefit because we can sort of see it happening. It's becoming pretty clear that people are not really willing to tolerate uh, much more lockdown than this. They're, they're, you know, we've been at this about two months now, and um, it doesn't look to me like there's any chance people will tolerate for this for four months, and zero chance that they'll tolerate this for six months. Um, and it's just not really. I think to me, it's not really clear what what benefit there is to reopening in four months or in six months relative to reopening right now, so long as just at a minimum, 
we understand that we have this overriding goal of protecting the healthcare system from being overwhelmed and that uh, we ought to be essentially titrating uh, so as to, to help that, uh, so as to you know, have, have a sense of there being a purpose to the lockdown. Because I think a lot of people now think maybe the purpose of the lockdown is simply to prevent deaths. Um, but uh, you, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't hold off a virus indefinitely. Uh, mm. Well, just to, to clarify something that you said, um, the the hospitals actually here in Montreal are getting pretty slammed. Uh, the there's two main epicenters of the pandemic in North America. Um, one is the biggest one is in New York City, and number two in North America is Montreal. So that's that's I think sort of one of the things that's kind of striking is the fact that um, <clears throat> that even though Montreal is the epicenter for the entire all of Canada and is one of the biggest epicenters in the world at the moment, uh, despite that the government has decided to reopen, right? So that that tells me, I mean, I didn't vote for this guy, uh, but his handling of this issue has been pretty, pretty sensible, I've thought, you know, uh, since the beginning. And he's not an idiot. So if he's willing to take the risk of reopening the province, even when we have most of the cases, for Canada and Montreal has, that tells me um, they must be looking at some pretty compelling countervailing evidence. And one of, I mean, one of the data points they're definitely looking at is, you know, just to, to speak to what you just said, uh, is that uh, numerous opinion polls have made it very clear that people in Quebec want to reopen the province more than anybody else in Canada People in Quebec are really, really sick of this shit, and they want it. They want the society reopened. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the concerns I have is when you try to make decisions like this by looking at opinion polls, um, and unfortunately, that's how many of the politicians are are going to make decisions. But but let me go back to something that Eric just said because I think that's it's relevant here which is that originally the argument for the lockdowns was to, quote, flatten the curve, right? The concern was that hospitals would be overwhelmed, that the issue was never that we were going to prevent all of these deaths, but rather that there were a lot of preventable deaths that we were going to nevertheless experience because of hospitals being overwhelmed. Again, they weren't just going to be COVID-19 deaths. They were going to be deaths from all sorts of things because hospital resources were being taken up. So you look at right now what's happening in the hospitals and what's happening in terms of of infection numbers and infection rates, and there is no question that the curve has been flattened. And so if you go into this and you say, look, the goal was to flatten the curve, we have achieved that goal. And if that was the justification for the lockdowns, then uh, unless you think that opening things up is going to somehow 
undo all of this and we're going to see some spike that's then going to overwhelm the hospitals and it doesn't seem like there's any actual evidence for that. Then we've gotten to the point where we, where we took drastic or dramatic action. We were successful in, in flattening the curve and preventing the hospitals from being overwhelmed. In fact, we see the opposite now that many of these hospitals are empty and they're furloughing people. And so it's it's not an unreasonable position to take to say, look, this was successful. It is time to open things back up. Uh, if we start seeing another spike, then we have to revisit. Um, but again, the goal was never to prevent a bunch of, of uh, you know, was never to prevent everyone from dying. People are going to die, unfortunately, from something like this. And so, you know, I think that's the challenge is what does sensible policy look like um, given that these things are ultimately the, the decisions are ultimately being made by politicians who are beholden to, as you say, you know, opinion polls and what people think we should be doing. And often what we what they think we should be doing is based on incomplete or inaccurate information. So it's it's a tough position. But I think it's important to highlight that this has been successful um, or at least successful at flattening the curve. And so the question I think then is, given that we have flattened the curve, given that we still don't have great data, still given that we still don't know what's, what's really going to happen three months, six months, 12 months from now, what should we be doing uh, given what we know is happening as a result of the lockdowns and what's likely to come? So if, yeah, if I can just jump in here to clarify about Montreal, I think that that, Chris, that seems like a great description of, of just from our outsider perspective in Canada, what we see happening uh, where you guys are. I think for us, our issue has been that, like, as John's saying, like, where there was perhaps reason to be more uh, hands off and, and be more lenient with the type of measures that were definitely, even by COVID standards, draconian here in Quebec in the beginning, um, there was a lot of pushback and people were saying, well, this is this is too much. Um, you're giving people massive fines they can't pay for walking in the park alone. Um, you're cracking down on things that shouldn't really be cracked down on, even if you were concerned a- about the worst case scenario of how this virus spreads. And then with more information and more pressure on the health system here, right at the time when you would think that these kind of draconian measures would make sense, that's when they're starting to pull them back. And I think that for us, we're kind of looking for this justification of like, well, he's saying, you know, they're telling us that this is based on the best possible information and data. Uh, and yet we don't really, there's no transparency. There's no way for us to see that that it, it is justified in the way that they're saying. So I feel a little bit stupid for having come on this podcast without having looked at the situation in Montreal, uh, like, particularly since I did live there in my childhood. But I think one thing that, that's important to remember, and I'm going to disagree with Chris a little bit here about the value of the opinion polling. One thing the opinion polling, I think, tells you <clears throat> that's important to know is um, I think lockdowns are a finite resource, right? I mean, you know, if we could, if we could, if we thought we could lock down the whole society for 18 months and wait for a vaccine, maybe that would be a thing to do. But I, I think that's just not, that's just not something that can be done, right? People are, people are only willing to tolerate, uh, and this is just a, a, a fact about the world that has to be taken on board. You're talking about people here and people have, uh, you know, preferences and behaviors and attitudes that you cannot necessarily alter. Um, and every day 
that you hold the society locked down. And in particular, every day that you hold the society locked down in a more draconian way um, is, is powder that you're finite, you know, gunpowder that you're using that you may want later. So it seems to me in a situation in which um, uh, you are, um, you know, pressing up against the margins of your, of the tolerance of your healthcare system, you want to make sure that you're not, uh, you're, you're not wasting powder in the sense that, um, you know, there's, it's, it's plausible, for example, we don't know, but it's plausible uh, that this virus is going to have some seasonality to it, that it's going to be, that it's going to, uh, you know, weaken a little bit over the summer um, and come back and slam us again in October. Uh, you want, come October, to at least have at your disposal the ability to lock down to some extent if you need to. But if you've been unnecessarily knocking down for the entire summer, that's just powder you're not going to have because people are going to be uh, chomping at the bit at that point, having been locked down unnecessarily all summer to, to, to open up. So I, I, I find there's not enough discussion of the fact that lockdowns are a finite resource. And I do think opinion polls tell you a little bit about how much of that resource you have available for yourself. What do you think? Uh, this is just a, a general question for for all of you. Um, what do you think the long term consequences for civil liberties are going to be uh, because of this? Because uh, you know, like Eric just mentioned, uh, Eric Sigan just mentioned, uh, is absolutely right that uh, you know we have lots of friends who've received tickets of you know, for a thousand dollars, you know, massive, massive tickets just for meeting some of their family members on a picnic bench in the park. Uh, people have received, you know, tickets for uh, playing Frisbee or soccer in the park uh, with just like, you know, one or two family members. There's, uh, you know, people have uh, been, given tickets for having six people over at their house and they go out onto the balcony for the smoke a joint or a cigarette or something like that. And they, they, there's snitch lines where you call up and report your neighbors. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, do you think there's going to be any kind of hangover from this or is it just going to pass? I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic. This is Jason talking now. Uh, so one reason I'm pessimistic about this, what this means for civil liberty is that I think most people are just fairly authoritarian. Um, when you do opinion polls about people or you try to survey their political beliefs, uh, for the most part, people are largely agnostic, but their normal reaction to danger, to the perception of danger, and even to just the action of government authorities to simply conform to it and defer to it. Uh, and that's partly because of fear and partly because liberalism is a despite thinking we live in like liberal societies here in the West, liberal democratic societies, very few people are ideologically committed to liberalism, even if they call themselves that. And then on top of it, there's this good book to read on this point called Crisis and Leviathan by Robert Higgs. Uh, I think it was published with Oxford back in like the eighties. And what he says in that book is that historically speaking, whenever there's a crisis in the U S or elsewhere, governments respond, like say during a war, Governments respond by increasing their power over the economy, over people's civil liberties, by taking away civil rights, by throwing Japanese people in concentration camps, by 
turning the economy into command and control, increasing taxes, whatever other stuff you might have in mind, suppressing uh, speech that's against the war, say. They do all these things. And then when the war ends or the crisis ends, they the governments relinquish some of that power, but never all of it. And so he says they always ratchet up their power rather than ratcheting it down. And you don't have to be kind of conspiratorial to think they're doing this because fundamentally they're corrupt and evil and just want power for themselves. You know, I mean, I work in D.C. The, the government is my neighbors. You know, they're the people I go to barbecue with or I used to go to barbecue with back when we were legally allowed to do that. Uh, they're well-meaning people. And I think their attitude is just. I want to do good by the world. And in order to do that, I need to have more power and more authority. And whenever you put a restriction on me, all that's doing is interfering with my capacity to make the world a better place. So when they get more power, they try to keep what they have and they don't let it all go. Yeah, that, that makes a great deal of sense. Um, so how, what would be the way of pushing back on this if you wanted to make sure that these changes are not permanent? I mean, Actually, before I even go to you for that what you're saying there's a wonderful discussion in a lot of like evolutionary uh, biologists talk about this but Franz Duvall in his uh, his book I think it's called um, good natured he he talks about how in our species there's this we are by nature most social animals this goes to your point Jason about how people are by nature authoritarian. I mean, Franz Duvall would say that you're absolutely right. Um, but he would say that the the difference is, is that social animals, if you take like dogs or wolves or lions or like most uh, mammals that are in a social organization, they start off as being very rigidly hierarchical. But then as they become more and more intelligent and more cooperative, they eventually reach this place, which is where we are as a species, which is um, that when times are good, uh, during times of peace, they tend to prefer something that is kind of a, a loose hierarchy that engages, that has a lot of like um, egalitarianism in it. However, as soon as the community is under threat, and I think somebody like Hobbes understood this very well, Thomas Jefferson um, understood this very well. This is why he was so reluctant to get involved in in wars. He said, you know, his famous line. He said, you know, when uh, when the when the nation is at war, freedom is uh, is lost, and things like that. So, as soon as people feel like their community is under threat um, from without or from within, then suddenly people default to authoritarianism, and so this is a a big problem for for anybody who who values freedom and liberty because you know the enemies of liberty they know this this is why they're always trying to create you know a war on terror or a war on drugs or a war on crime or a war because if they can push those buttons in our our sort of evolved psychology we end up defaulting to to authoritarianism and even people who normally uh, might actually be quite libertarian they will suddenly you know get into line right it's uh well, uh just i think it's worth maybe talking about two different kinds of uh infringements of liberty that are likely to take place from this one is one that we've been talking about more so far which is you know like these lockdowns and prohibitions of 
you know, meeting people in the park or whatever. But um, the other the other one that we haven't seen much of yet, but which is I'm sure going to come soon, is all the contact tracing stuff uh, and stuff involving um, you know our, our mobile devices and whatever. Uh, I don't know where I don't know what what places in the world these are going to be more likely to be implemented, but I'll be surprised if they're not. They don't start becoming more and more widespread. Where you're going to be required to have some sort of app on your phone that's going to Bluetooth to people and. Uh, like uh cause people to you know be able to keep track of where everybody is who they've been in, in touch with and um i mean this i think we really ought to be pushing back hard on uh and we ought to be pushing back hard on it not only from the viewpoint of view of the, the sort of liberal philosophical objections to it but also just the scientific objection to it um uh i think if we look at um you know, the, the, I mean, Jason's certainly right that we have li limited information uh, about the virus, but we, we're, we're beginning to learn some things. Uh, we're learning things from some of the serological, uh, you know, data where people are looking at who has antibodies to the virus. We're looking at, um, you know, some of our natural experiments like, uh, you know, Navy ships, prisons and stuff like that, where, where we have, where we're testing almost everybody in a community. Um, and we're learning that a lot more people are infected with this than we think. We're learning that a lot more people are getting infected with this uh, and not showing symptoms than we thought. Um, my my gut feeling, having looked at a lot of this data, uh, is that, at least in the United States, every time you see a case of COVID on the worldometer or whatever, that represents about 30 infections. Uh, maybe 30, maybe 50 minimum 20, the multiple of how many cases we're seeing to the number of infections that are out there. Uh, what does that tell us, right? That tells us right now in the United States, let's say we're getting 25,000 new cases every day. Let's suppose that there's 30 times as many infections as that. That's 750,000 infections every day. A lot of those people are asymptomatic. A lot of those people are pre-symptomatic. Um, the idea somehow that we're going to, um, you know, microscopically trace every every instance of infection and somehow eradicate the virus. I mean, I just think this is scientifically uh, just nonsense. Um, and uh, I think we ought to be pushing pretty hard back on that for just a variety of reasons. One, because I think the the, the mitigation plans that are focused around test and trace are likely to be just the kind of, you know, panopticon kind of surveillance that, we, that we've that we only imagined in science fiction. I find them kind of terrifying, but also because um, they, they're holding out uh, a kind of justification for the lockdowns that I find kind of bizarre, right? That somehow you hear people saying, well, we need to stay locked down longer so that we can bring the number of cases down to the level where we could do test and trace. Um, I just think this is, I just think this is, this is pseudoscience. Um, and I don't think there's any particularly good reason to think that that's a workable strategy. And so it's both, I think we need to be pushing back on that quite hard because it's both offering uh, a, a false and, and, and misleading logic regarding the lockdowns and also because of it, it it's, it's, an, it's likely to bring about a kind of, uh, security measures that I think we, we just really don't work towards. 
Yeah, and, and I can add to that, that at least in the U.S. in many places, people are pushing back. So I, I live in New Orleans, and New Orleans isn't necessarily the epicenter for this, that New York seemed to have it worse and, and a couple of other cities, but uh, our, our infection rate and hospitalization rate was one of the highest in the, in the country. Um, and so the, the mayor of New Orleans has been pretty aggressive in, in lockdowns and in you know, all of the things that Eric's talking about. And, and recently, the mayor of New Orleans announced that as part of one of the, the phases, uh, the, the most recent phase of opening up, that she was going to attempt to track everyone who is visiting every business in the city in some way or another. And the public pushback on this has just been incredible. And this is from a, a city that has really not complained at all, given the nature of New Orleans and how New Orleans is. No one's really complained much about the lockdown. You know, we've done pretty well with that. But the pushback on, on the tracking of people um, has has really been enormous. And if you're a believer in civil liberties, uh, and, and maybe this gets back to Eric's point about opinion polls or, or, or public opinion on this, uh, there's clearly a point at which even people who are uh, in favor of the lockdowns and are still in favor of some of this stuff, there's a point at which they say enough is enough. Um, and so I, I don't. I, I think part of the challenge is, is it's not clear what what you do um, beyond just saying, "Look, you know, let's let's see what happens." And, and unfortunately, when you have got, you know, in our case, uh, state governors going on TV and talking about how every life needs to be saved, um, we're, we're getting back to this issue of fear and how it's very easy to push forward with authoritarian measures um, when you can incite certain amounts of fear. But I mean, I guess what I'm seeing in New Orleans and what we've seen in other places is I think there's a, a natural you know, limit to that. And as Eric, I think, has said, when it comes to the opinion polls, you know, I, I think we're at least here, we're getting close to that. I, I don't know uh, where you are yet in Canada, and, and there may be cultural differences between us down here and y'all up there. Uh, but I think this is going to be the, the challenge, which is, you know, when, when you present this as we don't know what's going to happen six, nine, 12 months from now, but we're going to start tracing y'all, um, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. Um, but I think, you know, it, it would be interesting to get, you know, everyone's thoughts on some of the politics behind this stuff, because that's one of the things that Eric and Jason and I were responding to uh, as well, which is that in many ways, the decisions that are being driven by the, at the local level, at least in the United States, almost seem just as much a response to our national political leaders um, than it is a response to the virus itself and to the outbreak. And that's one of the things that we have to disentangle from this is what is the political response to, say, counter other politicians? And what is the political response that is reasonable when it comes to a, a virus? 
And given that, again, we may be different in the U.S., it, it seems almost impossible right now for our political leaders to set aside the partisan politics and make decisions based on what seems like the right types of policy. And, and so there's that aspect to this problem, too. And I imagine Canada is probably not you know, entirely different from the U.S. there is that this response and people's reaction to what should be done and what has been done and what will be done has been politicized just like almost everything else. Uh, and that's part of this discussion that I think we need to, to focus on or to at least understand how that is impacting what people think should be done and what they should think you know, has been done in their evaluation of all of this. Yeah, let me jump in and add three things. I'll try to make them pretty quick. So one is, when you look, there's this, there's a really interesting paper published a few years ago on uh, support for war uh, around the world. And they found that, uh, in general, in world history, when they have opinion polls, that when a war breaks out, people are always in support of it. And then after about a three-year period, they become tired of it and uh, become against it. Um, and then, like, early on, all the bad news actually makes them more in support of it rather than uh, less in support of it. So there are these like kind of predictable tendencies, at least when it comes to war, where, you know, like the biggest crisis of all, where people do that. And the funny thing then is when you ask people later, like when they're now saying, I'm now against the war, and you go and ask them, well, what did you think of it four years ago? They say, oh, I was against it back then too. And they're sincere. And this goes to a point that like uh, a really good book to read on like American politics is called Neither Liberal Nor Conservative by uh, Kinder and Calmo. They say that you really only get about 16 out of 100, and that's like their high estimate of Americans who have genuinely stable political beliefs over any long period of time, like, like a period like of a year. People, for the most part, they say, are politically agnostic, and they're taking their political opinion from leaders. So they're not supporting leaders because they share the opinion. Rather, they share the opinion because they support the leaders. And so uh, I don't I think in the case of, you know, what Chris is talking about, the politicization of this, people have their personal opinion on how they think their own life is going. But then we're seeing quickly that your stance towards COVID, like in the United States, at least, is largely determined by whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and it's not determined by science or data. One other bit that I think is really worrisome here, when you think about test and tracing and the stuff that, like, uh, Eric was talking about, you have to ask, well, who's going to do this? Because if you create power, um, whether you want anyone to wield that power depends upon who that person is. Like absolute dictatorial power would be a wonderful thing to give to someone like me because I'm basically a moral saint and I do the right thing the right, for the right reason all the time. But it's not true of everybody else. And so, I mean, to be more serious, like if Denmark were going to run a track and trace system of some sort, it's a pretty stable country with relatively honest leaders and very low levels of corruption. They tend not to abuse, abuse their citizens very often. But now think about that same kind of policy implemented in the United States, where we have police officers that shoot and beat the crap out of people for like no reason, where our government routinely spies on us all the time and lies about it and actually spies on foreign governments and lies about it. And then when it gets caught, continues to lie about it, even though everyone knows it does it, where uh, we have a fairly corrupt political system for, for by the standards of a first world democratic country, you might not want that policy in a country like ours, even if you think in principle, it would be the optimal policy if run by omniscient angels or at least moderately decent people. Yeah. Maybe we could bring it back 
to Chris after this as well, because I know that Jason, what you're talking about um, is something that came up in the paper that Chris co-authored about the impact of, of ideology um, on, on behavior during COVID. And I think that the, it's not necessarily clear to me how to demarcate the problem of, of ideology and its effect on people's behavior from the problem of the effect of bad science on bad policy. And it seems like those are kind of two separate issues that we're talking about at once. So I wonder if, if, if Chris can maybe clarify what was, give a summary of what was talked about in that paper. Uh, let me let Jason Jason take this because Jason's not just written on this in this paper, but uh, Jason's spoken about hooliganism and politics for quite a while. Um, Jason, let me kick this back to you. Uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm not quite sure if I get the question because it was directed towards you. Uh, but maybe maybe just talk about like political behavior in general and just say, you know, the, the model of democracy that we're taught in like sixth grade in the United States and probably sixth grade in Canada is, is that people have opinions and they pick a political party because they share the opinions and they vote for them for that reason. And as a result, democracy gives the people what they want, sort of compromise between everybody's opinion. And the stronger evidence we have for this, if you read Kinder and Calmo, if you read uh, uh, Christopher Aiken and Larry Bartel's book, uh, democracy for realists. If you read my book against democracy and a number of other similar works is that um, for most people, politics is like a sport. You basically belong to a, you're a fan of a particular sports team and you're a fan of a particular political party for largely arbitrary historical circumstance, having nothing to do with your interests. And then you just sort of take your direction from the thought leaders in that party. And so it's not you, you support this policy because you think it's good, but rather you support this policy because it happens to be what your leaders are advocating at this time. And you attack policies because it happens to be what leaders from the other side are saying. And you could imagine like this could have gone almost entirely differently in the U.S. or elsewhere. You know, we, we could imagine like a, a world in which Donald Trump had initially been very strongly in favor of crackdowns on the election on a like he immediately comes out in favor of lockdowns. And then the result is the Democrats say, uh, oh, no, we're against lockdowns because we know that, um, you know, rich upper middle class people with white collar jobs will be able to bear the brunt of this, like no, pro- no problem at all. However, uh, poor working class people, people in precarious positions, people with low levels of savings, they're going to be overwhelmingly harmed by this compared to everybody else. Uh, it'll help. It'll hurt the young at the expense of the old. And of course, the Republicans are the party of the rich and the party of the old. And so we, the Democrats, are in favor of keeping things open precisely because that's what it takes to uh, ensure the welfare of the least off among us. And that could have happened. It makes it would you can I can tell the story and it makes sense. But somehow, because Donald Trump initially took one position, you've got this thing where. It's now like the Democrat position is we should keep everything locked down and the Republican position is we should keep everything open. But it's it's arbitrary. It's not having anything to do with like genuine ideology or anything else. Yeah, so I, I just want to mostly agree with Jason, but to sort of add a, 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 another element to it, right? I mean, I think, I think um, a few years ago, things probably almost certainly would have gone uh, the way that Jason lays them out, right? That typically in the, in the U.S. and the left, People tend to be against, uh, you know, 
uh, police enforcement and against, uh, you know, top-down control, et cetera. But uh, I think really one of the things, and I don't think it was just it was entirely because, you know, how Donald Trump came out originally, but I think it's, it's in part because uh, the, the, a big part of the kind of ideological hooliganism, hooliganisming uh, that's been going on has been centered around, you know, which, which, which ideology puts trust in science and which one doesn't. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's, there's some reasonable justification for this, to, to be sure. I mean, I, um, I, I work a lot on uh, stuff having to do with climate science. And, uh, I mean, I think climate science has some truths to tell us that people probably ought to listen to. Um, but uh, here, um, uh, here we had a case where uh, people were jumping on to this claim that we ought to trust the science when it really wasn't at all clear what the science had to say about any of this. Uh, and so the kind of, the kind of, the, 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 the ideological um, kind of strands that very quickly polarized this issue weren't issues of political freedom versus authoritarian control or, or poor versus middle class or whatever. It very quickly became a fight about who are the scientifically literate um, and who are the know-nothing uh, deplorables um, even though, right, even though, of course, as we know, um, epidemiologically expert uh, advisors in various different countries were saying rather different things about what the best strategy to deal with this was. Uh, so it just, became, it just became very quickly a way of, uh, of aligning oneself about how much uh, trust in science one has. And so I think I'm probably one of the very few people you will find in the United States uh, that have pretty strong opinions about the need for us to do climate mitigation, but that also is uh, pretty skeptical about this, uh, most of the COVID mitigation stuff that we're doing. So, Eric, do, do you think that um, you do share Jason's point about um, thinking about it, if, if we come to this point where we say the science is obviously not as clear as it is on on climate change and yet there's this, there's this ideological bend towards being you know science positive as you might say amongst the left wing um it seems like and correct me if i'm wrong jason but you might be saying that well we want to come to this place of skepticism where given that the science is just not airtight we don't have the data necessary to make the type of claims that we're making and justify these measures we should be erring on the side of of freedom and, and and greater civil rights and i want to know if eric shares that that perspective as well yeah so so it's partly that i mean i definitely agree with that but i but i but also i think part of what i want to emphasize about the ideological dynamic here is that i think a lot of people here just wanted to be they wanted to be science positive about this they just wanted that's all they cared about they just wanted to be science positive they wanted to just trust the science it didn't really matter what science it was, or it didn't really matter whether the science was, uh, you know, mature enough to offer us useful advice. They just wanted to be, they just wanted to exhibit their ideological affiliation with the general pattern of, of trusting science. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, of course, I, of course, I agree in general, right. Um, that when we're in a situation of, uh, when we're in a situation of maximal kind of uncertainty, 
one has to default to things. And I can understand some people who say, look, we ought to default towards political liberty. I can understand people who say, uh, look, we ought to default towards precaution here, at least in the short run. Um, I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to people who think that, this, that the lockdown was, was, uh, was warranted in the very short run. Um, but the part of it that I find uh, unhelpful and uh, basically what Jason calls hooliganism, I don't know why I can't say that word, hooliganisming, uh, is this just kind of desire to be on the side of science, um, even though there wasn't clearly, there, wasn't, there, wasn't, there was never a clear uh, side that science was on in all of this. I, I got to say, too, it's been sort of an ironic or maybe ironic is not the right word, but I, I've seen some bizarre behavior that I would not have predicted among colleagues and other people that are supposedly scientifically very literate uh, in, in response to this crisis, because they're just saying the opposite of what I would have expected. You know, so I'm, I'm sort of infamous for having written this book called Against Democracy, where uh, it, this is not actually what the book says, but this is what people think it says. You know, people say, uh, Jason Brennan Against Democracy argues that economic experts should rule the world and no one else should stand in their way. And, you know, in that book, I do say, hey, some of our evidence that democracies underperform is that voters um, overwhelmingly reject the low hanging fruit consensus view of economists on the easy problems, which we have hundreds of years of evidence on. And I, I go around the country saying that and I'll be like in a political science department and say, Indiana Bloomington and uh, the political scientists there will say, yeah, yeah, but, you know, we can't really trust experts. We can't really trust science. We can't really trust economists and econometrics. And even if, you know, the uh, replication rate in economics is much higher than in medicine, we still can't even trust that. We, we have to just sort of defer to the people and what the people want because experts don't really know anything. And that's like what I was told uh, sort of as a response to the sort of straw man view that they think I have that I, they don't actually have. And then like I fast forward to this year, a couple years later, and we have a situation in which, like the quality of the evidence we have about COVID-19 as of March 15th is very poor. Uh, the models that we have are problematic in lots of ways. And I'm hoping Eric will like talk about that at some length too. Uh, the way that we're collecting data is very bad and it's violating pretty basic methods in research, like invariant basic methods in research. And everyone's all of a sudden like, no, no, we have to defer to the science. So it's like, on what are relatively easy problems, like is free trade generally good for a country? People are like, oh, we don't know anything. And then on this new hard problem, they're telling us to defer to science when the science isn't even really there. And that's kind of bizarre, isn't it? I, I don't get it. Yeah, and, and let me add to that. I mean, that, that was a surprise. Another thing was a surprise, and this goes back to Jason's uh, hypothetical about, you know, imagine Trump came out in favor of all the lockdowns immediately. It's been surprising to me, although perhaps I guess it shouldn't been for the reasons Jason discussed, uh, very surprising to me that folks on the left have been so supportive of policies that are going to disproportionately harm the poor and harm other people that are members of historically disadvantaged groups, at least in the United States. Um, you know, one of the things about lockdowns is that in order for them to work, just like any other bit of, of the law, right, you're going to have to threaten to enforce them with, with police force. And so we've been seeing across the U.S. in various cities, 
uh, as some of us have already been talking about, the police harassing people who are walking by themselves, the police setting up checkpoints, the police doing all sorts of things that under normal circumstances, I would have expected all of my friends on the left to be saying, this is horrible. We know what happens when there are more police out harassing members of minority groups. This does not go well, right? So people who look like me and Jason and Eric in the US, we, for the most part, we don't get harassed by the police. Um, and so that's been the other surprising thing here is not just the economics of it, right? It's, it's the people who are poor, who are working hourly wage jobs that are getting destroyed by this. But then also on the side of the lockdowns, you're or supporting policies that you know are going to have the likelihood of increasing these type of violent or hostile interactions that disproportionately target certain groups of people. And so I think that's been surprising to me as well and the, the willingness that folks have had at least here to, to set aside those those what I thought were firmly held ideological positions and they just set them aside so easily. Um, and we do have data on that. That's the, that's what also gets me. We do have data on that. We know how the poor are going to be affected by these sorts of policies. Um, and so that to me, I, I don't know, you know, I, that that's been one of the more troubling things about that too, in terms of the, the public response, not the response by the politicians in terms of public response, but the public response of sort of regular people or academics on the left, it's been sort of kind of mind blowing to me that they've, that they've taken that position. Uh, that's a excellent, excellent point. Um, the couple of things. Okay. Um, first of all, I think part of the reason for the response that you're seeing is, is a larger point, which is that what we think of as the political left has, for quite some time now in the well at the as in the english speaking world broadly has been increasingly more and more divorced from working class people so the the left is is largely made up these days of middle class people who work for uh, nonprofit organizations who work for government who work for academic institutions who work for and it, the left is is less and less defined by people who are you know pick up the garbage nurses um, people who work you know cops people who work in like you know working it's less defined by those people and so increasingly they're the kind of people that they can just sort of opt out of this and they can sort of you know as the hashtag stay the fuck home right they don't have to actually work in grocery stores and checkout lines and things like that so that's i think that's part of the reason why you're getting a a sort of surprising response where they're supporting these kinds of draconian measures because they're not really the ones that are going to be subjected to them um, but it is a a deeper issue, which a couple of you have brought up, which I think, you know, we we need to stop sort of pussyfooting around this. And I've had enough whiskey that I'm willing to. <laughs> so uh, we, we need to get right on this, which is that 
I don't I think even if you take a very charitable view of the epidemiologists who are to some extent kind of running the show at the moment, I don't think you need to have any kind of a negative view of them as people or to to think that they're, you know, authoritarian or they have nefarious motives. I think you just need to take a very basic view that most people, most of the time, have a hard time transcending their own interests as individuals, as members of a particular group, as a profession. And I think, you know, as I was saying to to Jason the other day, we were talking about this. Uh, if, you know, the, the old proverb, right, uh, doesn't translate very well into English, but like the old proverb that, you know, the, the shoe salesman always thinks you need another pair of shoes, right? And the epidemiologist always thinks you need another month of quarantine because from what they look at, from what their sort of vantage point is, this seems like a good idea because they want to sort of get to to zero. They want to absolutely minimize risk because that's what they're looking at. But our political leaders, like, for instance, the, the premier of Quebec right now, François Legault, we expect them to not just look at one particular indicator and to say, well, how do we maximize this? We expect them to look at a bunch of different data points and to decide what is the, how do we sort of manage these various kinds of risk and how do we kind of maximize uh, results for everyone? And I think what's happened right now, and this is what Jason has been talking about for days and getting sort of, uh, attacked viciously in social media land for doing so, uh, is that we can't let epidemiologists run our society in the same way that we can't let, you know, shoe salesmen run our society or anybody else. I mean, anybody who has a very uh, sort of myopic view of what is the common good, we can't let them uh, sort of decide how we're going to organize us, organize our society. But that's exactly what we've done. Right. So anyway. Well, yeah, I, I, I would like to jump in on that. I think I, I think I mostly agree with you, but I want to be I think one it, it's helpful to be a little bit to clarify two different kinds of stories of the kind that you're suggesting. Right. I think there's one that there's one that I want to be a little bit careful about accepting. And that's the one that says, look, um, epidemiologists like all people want to want to rule the world. And so they want us to um they want to put us in a situation where epidemiologists have a lot of power uh, or epidemiologists get a lot of money for their work or epidemiologists. So there's, there's one kind of crude picture like that, which, okay, maybe there's something to that, but um, I don't think one needs to look at it exactly that way. Right. There's another picture according to which um, it goes like this. Uh, it's the job of epidemiologists, and this is this is maybe the, the the shoe salesman analogy pushes a little bit better in this direction, right? It's the it's the job of a of epidemiologists. Uh, it's the job of epidemiologists to study disease, to study the spread of disease, um, and to help us to mitigate the spread of disease. And when you come into a situation like we were in in early February, 
going into early March, where we really didn't know. I mean, nobody knew what the nobody knew what the fatality rate of this disease was. The WHO at the time was saying something like three percent fatality for you know, in other words, out of every hundred people to get infected with this, three are going to die. Um, that the hospitalization rate was going to be ten percent. Um, so, uh, you know, you had an enormous amount of uncertainty uh, about basic facts about the virus like that. And then, right, uh, people were contemplating interventions like we've never done before. So we've never, we've never had on um, anything remotely like the scale that we're seeing right now, uh, interventions of the kind that we have. And we have no really good past data on the efficacy of these. And we went to epidemiologists and we said, do you have any models, right, that will enable us to predict what will happen on a variety of different policy alternatives? And they were poorly equipped to answer that question, right? I mean, I think it's, it's just not, it's not to denigrate them at all. Uh, it's simply a fact about the quality of data that we had at the time uh, and a fact about the degree to which we've been able to test their models of state interventions on uh, people's behavior in terms of disease spread, it was poor. Uh, and we went to them and we said, can you model this for us? And I think if you go to, if you go to a person who thinks of themselves as having the job, right, who thinks of themselves as that their primary uh, function in society is to help prevent the spread of disease, and you go to them in a situation where the data is poor, right? The modeling is relatively unconstrained. That is, there are all kinds of different inputs you could put into your models, and you don't have any particularly good reason of choosing one way of doing it or another. Uh, I think it's natural to expect people in that profession to make choices that are going to be maximally cautious, right? So if they say, look, oh, gee, what's, is the death rate of this virus 3% or is it 0.3%? We better assume it's 3% because if we assume it's 0.3% and we run our models on that, uh, you're, you're going to, you're going to, you know, we're going to then say that these, that these like very weak interventions are going to be satisfactory and we're going to fail at our job, right? I think epidemiologists are, it's, it's just going to be natural for them to think that if they underwarn us and, uh, we then end up with more death from disease than we could have otherwise, they will have failed at their job. But if they overwarn us and, you know, uh, the, the, the maximally low number of people that die from the disease is achieved, they will have succeeded at their job. And that, they're going to think that, I think very naturally, they're going to think of that as a success, regardless of what the other downstream consequences of their, of, of their interventions are, right? Uh, so it's just, I think, this is the kind of what the, the, the you know, this is the, the analogy John was making about the, the, the shoemaker, uh, is it's just part, it's just part of their job uh, to be worried about disease and to be thinking of themselves as doing what is maximally possible to mitigate disease. And then when you put them in a situation in which you're asking them to make models where the data are poor, the modeling assumptions are unconstrained, they are going to produce, and we saw this, this is not, I don't think this is disputable at this point, that they produced forecasts for us that were, that were um, both, you know, too pessimistic uh, about um, the degree of strain that the ICU systems would endure in various places um, and, 
and and then right i think as they did that um and then they recommended various interventions which then the interventions then obviously in most places in almost all places uh we then didn't have the strain on the hospital system then if it's then a question of well now should we relax these you're again going to get them in a situation where i think they're going to think well they're going to be constantly thinking about this in terms of what's the maximally cautious right uh way to model the possible outcomes of various interventions here yeah and, and let me let me add to that that i i don't think this is necessarily just a problem when it comes to epidemiologists. I mean, this is this is a problem when you look at incentives uh, and background for for everyone that people have uh, their expertise, um, and when experts are called on in situations that they're not used to operating in, they act like they usually do. Which you know, so let me let me move this away from epidemiologists for a second because I think it might be helpful. Um, you know, so so we're all academics. Uh, we all publish every so often in philosophy journals, and and you see some batshit crazy arguments in philosophy journals, um, because for the most part, philosophy professors and philosophy journals are writing for other philosophers, and, and you know, only three or four people are going to read their their articles. Um, the problem ends up being when you see these academics who are used to writing for like three and four people in an environment that incentivizes people to, you know, really make some crazy arguments, right? And you see them now uh, put in, in the public, right? And so they start writing op-eds or they start writing, you know, they start being interviewed by the news or they start being interviewed by by. Um, other places with large audiences, uh, they often say the same sorts of things that they've been saying in these crazy journals because, because they just don't know any different. Uh, and I think that's not so much an indictment of, of, say, academics and what academics are used to doing, but rather it, it's, it's perhaps not a familiarity with, with what's being done. And so you know, you look at, at that issue when it comes to some of these epidemiologists that are used to talking with other epidemiologists and not being thrust on CNN every night, and you can see why there might be, there might be a disconnect. But, but there's also an issue of, of incentives. Um, you know, so Jason and I just finished this book on the criminal justice system uh, in, in the U.S. And, and all the various problems are looking at many of the problems and how to fix some of these problems. And one of the things that, that we argue and again, I think this point is, is directly relevant to this issue with the epidemiologists, is that it's not so much when we see problems in, say, the criminal justice system in the U.S., it isn't so much that we have a lot of racist cops and racist judges and racist laws um, or laws that are intentionally trying to screw the poor or whatever else. But when you look at people's incentives, when they operate or act rationally, given the laws or given the rules that have been put in place or given how the reward structures have been have been implemented you see all of these outcomes that you look at it and say this is really far away from what we think a just society would look like and it's not so much that you can uh, identify a bad actor along at, at any particular point along the chain and you can't and so i think you see something very similar with a lot of epidemiologists that, that they're making decisions that um, it's not so much that, that they're badly motivated at all, they're, they're all appropriately motivated. Um, 
but these decisions, what their suggestions are, have to be taken in context with, you know, the public policy decision, a public policy decision is not just about epidemiology. The epidemiologist is going to tell you what they think is going to happen based on their, their best guess, right? But public policy decisions need to take into account so many more things than that. And so when you, when you wrap all those things up, you look at their incentives, you look at that academics are usually speaking only to academics, and you see how this plays out in other areas of public policy, it at least should have given us pause here and say, look, we need to understand what the reasonable response is. We need to understand why people are motivated to say what they are saying. Uh, it doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't make them wrong. But it also means that they're looking at a problem with a specific lens on and that a broad public policy decision can't be made only looking at these issues with specific lenses. Um, so I think that's something it's, it's not as so much about being critical, but it's, it's about realizing the why people are making certain suggestions and taking those uh, background conditions into account when thinking about how to weigh their thoughts on what we should be doing. Yeah. And let me, let me add a couple of bits to that on the incentives and then maybe talk about specifically what this means to um, uh, for the case of the modeling and so on that people were doing. Think of it like, uh, you know, you have perverse incentives in place often. So uh, I write a lot of contrarian stuff. And so some people look at me and go, maybe Jay just wants to get published more. And one way to be published more is to write contrarian things. And that's true. And probably that has like some sort of corrupting effect on the, on my work. But there's also like, if you want to get published, you also have an incentive to kind of conform to the attitudes of the people that are likely to be your referees. So when you're thinking about scientists and social scientists and others, you aren't, really getting tested by the truth, you're getting tested by people's reactions to you. Now think about, say, government regulators like in the FDA. If the FDA in the United States approves a drug and it makes a lot of people sick, they will be blamed for it and their behavior will be punished and they'll look bad. If they simply never, uh, if they simply never approve a drug and as a result, lots of people die who could have been saved by a drug, no one knows about it. It's invisible. And so when we think about behavior uh, some costs are easily visible to people and some costs are largely invisible. And so uh, now people know that lots of people are going out of work. They are seeing that kind of stuff, but the downside risks of suppression are much harder to track. Whereas the downside risks of keeping things open and people dying of COVID, it's really easy to track. And, and that changes the incentive structure that uh, people have. Uh, government, if, if, Governments had stayed open and it turned out that ICL was right and 2.2 million Americans died from COVID under an open system. Everyone in government would get slammed for that. If they close everything and the result is that, you know, 17 kid, million people in India die of starvation over the next year and a half. Uh, well, that's really hard to track. And very few people pay attention to that other than like a few academic economists and maybe a few political scientists and maybe maybe the UN will too. Right. So. When we have, we have incentives to make choices that make us look good in part because of how we're going to be blamed. And I'm not saying everyone's selfish and that's all they care about, but unless you have a really rosy and Pollyannish view of human nature, you have to think this influences people on the margins and you have to really think it influences them fairly significantly. You know, and so that's when we come down to like thinking again about the quality of the data and the information we had or the models that we had, you know, so 
as, as Eric mentioned, like the ICL model that was so influential in policy in the English speaking world, it has all these weird things. Like one is it has something like 700 different parameters and the parameters, meaning like when you run the model, you have to make a guess about how, like what the percentage, if, if a certain thing happens, what percentage of people will get sick or what percentage of people fall into a particular category. And there wasn't good data about that stuff, um, even in past cases and like past viruses that have been, we've already gone through to know what the numbers were, let alone here. And so one thing you'd want to do is like maybe run lots and lots of different numbers to see if it's robust under different assumptions. But there wasn't really time for that because running the model takes something like 10 to 20,000 processor hours for it to work. Uh, so they have to make guesses and that's maybe the best they can do, but it's problematic. And then, uh, you know, we can start looking at what it predicts and then what it predicts and what actually happens to start seeing if it's, it's accurate. And so there's a paper that was published by uh, Gardner and a few other people where they basically took the ICL model and ran it for Sweden. And uh, they report, this is a quote from them. Our model for Sweden, this was published back um, about a month ago. It says, our model for Sweden shows that under conservative epidemiological parameter estimates, the current Swedish public health strategy result in a peak intensive care load in May that exceeds pre-pandemic capacity by over 40-fold with a median mortality of 96,000. Their best, okay, that's the end of the quote, their best case estimate if they use maximal suppression lockdown techniques was that Sweden would have over 15,000 deaths by the end of April. In fact, Sweden didn't have didn't use maximal suppression and lockdown techniques, and in fact, the number of deaths was a small fraction of that, uh, under three thousand, more about twenty five hundred. So here's a case where you get a test, you know, because one of the problems with you criticize the ICL model, like I do, and I say, oh, here's some of the problems with it, some of the missing information, some of the guesses that they had to make, uh, some of the problems about the the lack of good quality of the data, people go, yeah, but, you know, they said 2.2 million people might die, but it's only if we do nothing, but we did something. And so therefore, uh, if fewer people than that die, then that's that's just going along with their estimate. But now if you run that same model for Sweden, it makes vastly over predicts the number of deaths that Sweden should have had by now. Um, and so it's starting to look like, you know, that there's problems with uh, there's problems with this data. And, and it, the weird thing I get too is that people people often say to me something like, "Well, you're not an epidemiologist. How can you critique this? You don't have your own model." But let, let me describe like what happens at like the papers that people present in my department. An economist comes in; they're working on some problem. They give us a model for the problem, and even though the other people in the room might not be an expert in that particular thing, like agricultural policy in California in the 1840s and how railroads affected it, they can never point out things like. You have problems with the way your data was collected. You have problems with uh, parts of your model where uh, it's clearly like biased in certain ways. And because there are largely invariant research techniques for almost every single field that uses modeling and uses statistics, there are basic rules that you have to follow. And so you can find out when someone's making a mistake on those rules or making guesses and so on, and you can critique them, even if that's not the particular thing that you work on. Eric, why don't you take over and maybe talk a little bit more about um, about like where the data was coming from and some of the problems with the biases in the data? Sure. Um, I mean, so look, I mean, our original data, as I, as I said, came from came from China, and what people were originally looking at is what's known as case fatality rates. In other words, they were saying, look, how many how many how many cases did the Chinese identify of people who were infected with coronavirus, and how many of them died. 
Um, but, but I mean, one, one obvious problem with that, right, is that um, cases are not all infections, right? Not every infection turns into a case. Um, and I think every, I mean, pretty much everybody understands this at this point, right, that uh, there's going to be uh, a pretty high correlation between you having a severe case of infection with the virus and you turning into a, ca turning into a case. If if I were to if I were to call uh, the emergency room here in San Diego right now and tell them, uh, you know, I have a fever and a bad cough. Uh, uh, I'm I'm a 52 year old male. Uh, I have mild hypertension. Uh, what should I do? They would say, stay home. Uh, right? If I said, um, oh, I'm a 65 year old male. I have uh, moderate hypertension they would probably still say, stay home, right? They're not going to tell me to come to the emergency room until, unless I tell them uh, I'm breathing heavily. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, when I get up from bed, I start to wheeze uh, and I'm falling. Then they'll say, oh, well, now you bet, you know, maybe you better come into the ER. And then I'll come to the ER and they'll test me. Uh, and if I test positive for coronavirus, I'll become a case, right? So, um, uh, all the people who are told to stay home, or even the people who never even have symptoms in the first place, those people aren't, aren't cases, right? Um, but, but early on, right, early on in the, in the pandemic, when particularly when we were just getting data from China, but then even, even later as you're we getting data from Italy and early data from New York and California, we were looking at, we were looking at, um, you know, relationships between tested confirmed cases and deaths, hospitalization, ICU admittances, right? We were getting, we were trying to estimate, okay, um, if X many people become infected with coronavirus in the state of New York, how many are going to end up in the emergency room? That in fact was in the emergency room and then eventually in the ICU. That was, uh, if you recall, right, if you go back to late March when the lockdowns were being imposed, that was the that was the um, the essential prediction that we were wanting the models to tell us, right? Will emergency rooms, will ICUs, will ventilators become overwhelmed, or do we need to flatten the curve, right? Or and, and do we need to flatten the curve to prevent that from happening? So that's what the models were. That's what the models were being used uh, to predict. Um, but it's, 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 of course, like, right, hopeless to predict that if you don't have a pretty good sense of what is the probability if someone like me or someone like Jason or someone like John or someone like Chris or someone like Alice or Mary becomes infected, what is the likelihood that they are going to end up in the emergency room? What's the likelihood that they're going to end up in the ICU? What's the likelihood that they're going to spread that disease to other people in the ICU, right? Uh, what's the likelihood that those people are going to become, have serious, co serious morbidity from that infection? If you're estimating all of those things from the case numbers, right, and you know that case statistics are heavily influenced by the fact that severe infections are more likely to be caught, uh, you need to adjust for that, right? I don't think anybody has been, I don't, I, I seriously doubt that from day one of this, there's been a single epidemiologist that didn't understand that very basic fact. Let me be perfectly clear. I'm not suggesting that there's ever been anybody remotely involved in this that didn't understand that fact. But 
right? I want to go back to a point I made earlier. When that's all you have, right? If all you know is, well, gee, in China, 4% of the cases ended up in, resulted in deaths. I know that the infection fatality rate's got to be lower than 4% because I know that there's this problem with using cases as my, uh, uh, as my denominator when I'm figuring out what the, what the fatality rate is. I know that. That's obvious. But how much should I adjust it down? Should I adjust it from 4% to 3%, from 4% to 1%, from 4% to half a percent, from 4% to a quarter of a percent? Again, you get back to this question of what do you do when you're, when you have, you're being asked to model the spread of a disease and you have unconstrained choices, right? And I think it's just natural. It's just what we ought to expect when we when the people who we're asking are the people whose job it is to prevent the spread of disease and to prevent the death to prevent the the incidence of death from the spread of disease it's just going to be natural that when they're unconstrained in that way by the data they're going to make the maximally conservative estimate and by conservative here right i mean the one that maximally uh, estimates the degree of severity uh, and I think that's what we saw, right? And I think that's what we saw. And then, and then, and then, what we saw, what happened after that is, as it's now become more and more clear that those that those assumptions were uh, overly pessimistic, um, we're finding there's a there's a change in the there's a the, the policy choices aren't really be effect being affected by uh, the new information. Rather, it's the justifications for the policy choices that are being modified. Right. So originally, again, I've said this a couple of times now, but I'll, it's maybe worth repeating. Right. Again, the original justifications were the models predict so many people are going to end up in the ICU. We only have one eighth of those number of ICU beds. Ergo, we've got to flatten the curve. And now that it's become, I think, reasonably clear that the uh, uh, that the that the predictions of ICU need were were overly pessimistic. Right. We aren't, uh, we aren't modifying our policy choices. We're coming up with new justifications for the policies. Oh, well, we need to keep the lockdown in place so that we can get to test and trace. When at no point, right, at no point has there really been uh, anyone standing up behind work that suggests uh, that we can use uh, these lockdowns to get us to a place where test and trace has a, has a, has a snowball's chance of working. Well, let me add on the test and trace. I mean, there's a there's a question of whether that is something, and, and this is more of a philosophical question, whether we could even get to that point, right? And I'm I'm with Eric. I don't think we could actually get to that point in the U.S. We're not we're not South Korea. There are many differences in terms of size and other things that make it almost impossible. But but in the world where we could. Right. So you could imagine some way of using smartphones and I don't know what else to get there. I think there's a question of whether whether we would actually want to. Right. That, that there's a, an interesting discussion to be had when it comes to individual freedoms, that at what point are you willing to say, look, there's a danger out there. And I understand there's a danger out there. But you know what? I'd much rather deal with the danger out there than deal with the danger of the government knowing all this information about me, tracking me in this way, 
putting this tracking apparatus in place that even if they used it just to monitor, say, infectious diseases, it could be used for all sorts of other things. So there's a philosophical question here, too, which is, at what point are we willing to give up basic freedoms uh, and not just freedom of movement, but but also uh, uh, freedoms of privacy and just issues about our own lives that we, you know, we we don't feel like we want to share with the government in order to mitigate a very small, like admittedly on the other side, right, a very small chance of, of coming down with a disease, suffering and, and dying. I mean, I think that's something that we that we need to to we need to think about as well. Chris, I want to make a point just as somebody who's 28 years old and talks to other people um, my age, which is just that I think that a lot of people, um, a lot of like lay persons understand this concept that, that Eric's talking about of, of the, the issue of, of obviously you're testing people that are presenting themselves to hospitals. So we're, we're estimating this case fatality rate uh, improperly. Um, and then the question becomes, well, if we want to go the other way, if we think that it's possible to open things up and that this case fatality rate is, is, is wrong, we've been measuring it wrong, and that therefore we have more justification for opening things up, well, then us young people are going to be the ones that go out and we either get the choice between going out and, and taking this small risk of being yeah, potentially infected by the virus, or we get to choose these draconian measures like the ones in Taiwan uh, where they, they trace your phone. I think a lot of times the way it's presented to us is this is a question of, of is do you have some inalienable right that is being violated by the state by tracking you? And a lot of people my age don't care about that question for whatever reason. They don't care that the state is violating some some rights that they have. It's more that it's never presented to them in the sort of consequentialist way, which is to say, every time we've tried something like this, every time we've handed over the reins to this, that kind of authority, it hasn't worked. And I think that that's maybe the piece of this conversation that's missing for for younger people and the part they need to hear, which is that you giving up that to the state, you you giving up that kind of tracking ability is just not going to end in good results. Look, I don't, I, I don't, I guess I, I don't think that we have an inalienable right not to have our phones tracked. In fact, I think, look, if I thought, I, I, I could imagine a very different virus, uh, one that was much more, had a much higher rate of fatality and a much lower rate of transmission, uh, where I would support a a measure like that. If we had a virus that, you know, uh, killed 30% of people that got it, um, but that spread very slowly, I'd say, yes, let's let's maybe try to track and trace that. Maybe we could save a ton of lives in a situation like that. But, you know, we're, we're not dealing with a virus like that. We're dealing with a virus which, like I said, is probably infecting 500 to a million people a day in the United States right now. That's unsymptomatic uh, to at least 50, if not 75% of the people who have it. Uh, it's just a fantasy, I think, that we're going to be able to to track and trace it. So, 
uh, it seems to me that implementing a system that's that's attempting to do the impossible is going to have a very low probability of delivering anything positive um, and a very high probability of uh, resulting in a permanent state of affairs where uh, we have now turned over to the government the uh, uh, basically know where we all are at all times uh to me it's all you know to me it's all cost benefit and i just see a likely benefit of something like this for this particular virus being extremely low it's just not plausible that we're going to uh that we're going to um we're going to track down every single infection of this virus and somehow eradicate it from uh from north america I think there's a question to be had about how much folks value privacy and whether, you know, they're making a decision for themselves to put their, their law, you know, to put their information out in the public or whether that decision is being made for them. You know, it, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of young folks, you know, 20 through, through 30, right, take the position, well, I don't really care if the government tracks me. Right, because these are the individuals who are putting their lives on social media right now. You can find out everything about everyone, um, and so if if you're putting everything up until you know every every uh, eggs Benedict that you've eaten at every cafe, every dinner, every time you go to the the spin studio, uh, every single thing you're doing on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter as you're doing it, you know it doesn't really matter if the government tracks you because you're publicizing it yourself. But again, there's a difference, I think, between individuals making that decision for themselves and saying, I want to put all of this information out there for my friends to see or for the world to see and for the government to say, look, in order for you to get on public transportation or in order for you to to go to a restaurant or order for you to go to the grocery store, you're going to need to check your phone, you know, sign your phone in and tell us that you're here and submit to like temperature screenings and whatnot. And, and the, you know, it might get back to Eric's point where he said, look, you know, this, this virus doesn't justify that type of reaction. Um, and so, you know, is it the case that we could imagine something that does justify that? Po- possibly, possibly, but, but I'm not sure. At, at some point, I think you have to, you know, individuals need to be allowed to, to live their lives. I mean, I think it would even let me let me I think we could just punt on that. I think we can just punt on the could you imagine a virus or a health situation that might justify those type of author- authoritarian measures? Punt on that. We're certainly not there now. And so even if you're the type of person that says, I don't really care about my privacy, I would rather have safety and security. The situation we're dealing with right now does not justify us to take those steps and certainly doesn't justify for us to encourage the government to put that type of infrastructure into place. It might be worth also talking about what the long-term consequences of this might be um, in terms of policy. So we already talked about how uh, there's a tendency for when governments take more power upon themselves, they don't give it all back when the crisis is ended. Uh, We're seeing lots of governments taking on massive amounts of debt to pay for various kinds of things. And, you know, who has to pay for that? It's, it's going to be other people down the road, you know? Uh, So we, we took on more debt to save, to save Nana. And, uh, and now like grandkids are going to have to pay for that when they become adults. Um, 
One thing that that people wonder about too is like, is this going to lead to restrictions, permanent restrictions on travel, on trade, on uh, on immigration, and so on? I mean, I have, you know, most of my Facebook friends are like your kind of normal, good, moderate, left left wing academic type, but I have people who are like conservative, and I see them saying. This just proves that we need to have no trade at all with foreign countries and we should be autarchical. They don't use that word, but that's what they mean. Uh, and then you have others saying, doesn't this just prove that we need to have um, more immigration restrictions, since for instance? And it's worth noting here that like, when it comes to, to actually make that kind of thing work, like let's say you think, okay, well, this virus came from China. This just proves we need to restrict the borders in order to prevent uh, disease from coming into the country. You would have to have dramatically draconian restrictions beyond what we already have. Keep in mind, like in the US, we already are basically at about 98 to 99% closed borders. It's very difficult to get a visa to come here for the long term and to be allowed to move here. Like it's most people who want to move here are not legally allowed to. Even my colleague and often co-author Peter Jaworski, who works at Georgetown and uh, had a prestigious job and everything, for him to move from Canada to the U.S. semi-permanently took tremendous amounts of work, even though he had a U.S. PhD and a job offer at a U.S. university. It's very difficult to come here. So if you wanted to like genuinely stop infection from crossing borders, you'd have to pretty much permanently stop trade. You'd have to like stop tourism. You'd have to allow people to fly with a visa, but maybe they'd have to like wait for two weeks before they can come in. Um, you'd have to cut down dramatically on the amount of trade. And keep in mind, like in the U.S., uh, foreign trade is only about, depending on how you measure it, between like 10 and 15% of our GDP anyways. Most of our trade is actually internal. Um, most, Even though we have lots of people who are move, coming here in absolute terms, as a percent terms, it's very, very low. So you'd have to really build very big walls and, and police them very strictly to stop the spread of disease in any meaningful way. We're already almost at the point of having closed borders, and that wasn't enough to stop it. Uh, just to respond to you, Jason, um, we have a massive agricultural sector here in Canada, and we, like the United States, we are one of the few countries in the world, uh, the United States, Canada, Russia, probably India, there's not a lot of countries in the world, um, but we're one of the countries that if you suddenly built a border around our country with a tall wall, we could feed ourselves. The United States could feed itself. Russia could feed itself. India could feed itself. Um, but a lot of our agricultural sector depends on migrant workers, on Mexican workers, um, primarily. And we're freaking out right now because we don't know. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I know there's people who are like against globalization and trade and, you know, all that stuff who say, oh, well, we can just hire native workers to do that work. N not really, actually, uh, because the Mexican workers that come up to Canada to do that agricultural work they're actually really fantastic workers. It's not just, it's not a, a pay issue. I mean, like they, we could pay workers here in Canada $25 an hour and they would not do as good of a job as the, the migrant workers do. But anyway, so 
we have this issue where if we close down all of the borders, a lot of sectors are going to be in trouble. And I'm wondering if you've heard anything about how we are supposed to respond to this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to answer that question uh, in any serious way, except to say how ignorant we really are about these kinds of things. Um, when, when we were sort of like thinking about this and writing about this, we all sort of did literature searches trying to look for, um, you know, are there past examples of this, like policies like this done on any significant scale and then people have studied them after the fact. You know, scientists are often very bad at making predictions ahead of time, but we can analyze why things work the way they did after the fact. And, you know, that's, that's sort of like how evolutionary biology works, for example. You can't really predict what the animals are going to look like in a thousand years, but you can certainly say, like, what caused them to look the way they did now. But there haven't been policies like this, and so there isn't good economic data uh, or studies telling us about the effectiveness of these kinds of things. We don't really know how this affects economies in the long term. Um, like how, how, like you know, everything in the economy is related to everything else. And so, when we shut down one sector, this can have hard to trace and often invisible effects in other sectors, and then everything starts to unravel. And so, a lot of what's happening with the kind of economy versus health thing that people say, which I think is already a false dichotomy, but when they say it's about the economy versus health, where we're, we're we're working on a situation where we don't really know how to model one thing. We don't really know how to model the other. And we're at best trying to make our best kind of guess. Right. And, uh, and we don't know what the hell we're doing. And I, I want to add one more thing about this too. When you think about not only do we not have track records for this, but there's this famous book by Philip Tetlock. Philip Tetlock is a social scientist who works on among other things, expert judgment and expert prediction. And he studied at great length, how good are experts at making um, predictions about the future. So if you want to read his book, uh, he, has, he has two books on this. There's an easy one to read, and then there's the one that's more data-driven. So the one you should read if you're, if you're a smart person is Expert Political Prediction. So in that book, he looks at about 83,000 predictions that hundreds of experts make on a wide range of topics. And he ignores what he considers, uh, what the experts themselves consider easy questions, but only looks at what they consider hard questions. And in that book, he finds that experts do basically uh, no better than chance. Or I should say, they don't do any better than like Berkeley undergrads given like the same uh, question to answer. So what he basically has shown is on hard questions, experts are not good at making predictions. Right? That's what the science says. And it's robust and it's been done by others and you get the same thing. So it's another reason we say like defer to the science. You know, we've been pointing out, well, the science isn't quite there to justify this in the first place. There's a lot of problems with the science, a lot of ignorance. But if you want to defer to the science, great, defer to the science. And the science says that this is not the kind of science that we're good at. You know, and I'm saying that as a person who is reputed to be the one who's always saying that democracy should defer more to expertise. And I do think that. But I also think we should recognize when the expertise isn't there to defer to. Just, I just want to add one thing, right? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious um, just from the kinds of considerations that you raised about, say, migrant workers in Canada, that it's just, it's just becoming, I think, really quite clear that these, these lockdowns can only go on so long, right? I mean, they're going to begin to create supply chain disruptions eventually that are intolerable. I don't think we need, I, this is, I, this is, you know, I'm just going to be the Berkeley undergraduate here. 
And I'm going to say like, this is not a hard question. Uh, these things have a finite lifespan before they start to cause uh, a ridiculous amount of havoc. Uh, and so just, this is just to repeat a point I made earlier, right? Even if you're the, even if you think uh, that the epidemiologists are right here and that uh, we need lockdowns to protect the hospital system, and they may very well be right about that. Um, it's a finite resource, and we can't just we can't just have the you know this is kind of the backwards analogy. But if you think of lockdowns as a tap that you open, we have the tap wide open right now, um, and we're squandering uh, what a, a finite resource that we may need at some point in the future. We may need it in the fall. We may need it next winter. Uh, we may genuinely need it in the, for the reasons that it was that it was originally argued for. That is to protect our healthcare system, and uh, we're squandering it now. And we're squandering in a way that's not responsive to what seems to be to be an obvious truth that this is a finite resource that our economies can only handle uh, so much of this. Let me also add add on this that I think yeah I think Eric's right in terms of a finite resource in terms of how much uh, lockdown or lockdowns people are going to tolerate. But I think it's also important to note that. You know, the epidemiologists didn't all agree that the lockdowns were necessary or the lockdowns should have been done. Uh, I, I mean, you look in the U.S., you look at someone like Michael Osterholm, who, who was saying from the beginning that the lockdowns were going to present uh, a significant problem, that as soon as you lock down, for instance, schools, right, now we're going to have a bunch of people who are essential workers, whether they're hospital staff or in in all sorts of other positions who are now not going to be able to go to work because they've got to take care of their kids. And so from the very beginning, he was talking about, he said, look, you know, we know that children are really not all, you know, necessarily affected by this in the same way that other people are. If we start these lockdowns and if we close the schools, they're going to have, that's going to have all of these other consequences. We need to think about that. So, so it's not as if, I mean, I think, I think that's the other point here, that it's, it's not as if every epidemiologist was saying, look, we need to do lockdowns. Um, and it was interesting to see that when you had epidemiologists come out and say, you know, lockdowns weren't necessarily the way to go or we should be doing something different, they were criticized as sort of being on the fringe. Uh, and so it was a really interesting, I think, I think looking back on this, you know, go out two, three years from now when you start looking back. And one of the nice things about the Internet is that you can keep everyone, what everyone says is preserved forever when it comes out on the Internet. I think you're going to see a really interesting mix of what people said, what was taken seriously, what was sort of um, set aside as sort of views of, of folks on the periphery. Uh, and I think we're going to be able to look back and we're probably going to end up with the same type of data that we've seen when it comes to expert is, experts is that, you know, they, they didn't have it right, at, at least in many cases. And, and Eric is right that when you take very drastic and dramatic actions that have these kind of effects in the population, you can only do it so often. Let me give you one example of this, which I think might be easier for a lot of folks, especially where Eric and I live, to understand than epidemiology and pandemics. Eric lives in Tampa. I live in New Orleans. Every year for about four months, you live on edge during hurricane season. And you can watch these things coming. And at some point, 
the city leaders say, you know what, this thing is getting too close. We're going to declare a mandatory evacuation. And people generally, when that happens, listen. The problem is, is that if you declared a mandatory evacuation for every single storm that was within seven days of hitting the city, no matter what path it was going to go, people would eventually stop listening to that. And I, that's the real risk here. And, and Eric's brought this up elsewhere, is that when you look at other issues, whether it's hurricanes or whether it's climate change or whether it's any of these, these pressing problems that we rely on scientific experts to direct people to make really dramatic changes to their lives, you can only play that card so many times. Uh, and, and if you get it wrong, it makes it more likely the next time you play that card that folks aren't going to listen. And I think that's, I share Eric's concern on that is that when we've been playing this lockdown card a lot, uh, and it's, and you can only play it for so long now, but there's a concern that if the thing comes back or you've got another situation in the future, you know, people may not listen. Uh, and that presents all sorts of problems. So I think it's 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 important that we're careful, but it's being careful on both sides. Yeah, that look, that's absolutely right. And I mean, just to just to mix the points together here too. I mean, not only does the hurricane situation make for an interesting analogy, but it's also, you know, that hurricane season is going to get started here in what about a month. Um, and I can promise you that sometime between this June and this November somewhere on the Gulf Coast. I don't know whether it's going to be in Florida or if it's going to be in Louisiana or if it's going to be in Texas or it's going to be in all three of those. Um, some meteorologist somewhere is going to think some of these places need evacuations. Uh, and 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 what what are we going to do if we have uh, you know if we're if we're in some kind of COVID lockdown uh, and we also need to evacuate uh, all the all the beach communities in uh, in Tampa or in Galveston or uh, or wherever, or we need to evacuate all of New Orleans. Uh, I don't think anybody's thought any of that through at all. Um, final question. Well, who knows how long this will go for, but um, one thing that has been haunting me um, throughout this pandemic is and a number of you have said things that sort of point in that direction. Um, but one of my mentors at Concordia University, who I, you know, I, I learned a great deal from him. Very interesting man. Um, it's a genocide scholar. And he said that, you know, we often forget that one of the reasons why a lot of people didn't believe the initial reports of the Holocaust and of the concentration camps was because there had been all of these fake news accounts from World War One, where they were trying to get people, they were trying to drum up support for the war effort by creating all these like, you know, fake accounts of what the Germans were doing to people and stuff like that. And so when they heard the accounts of the concentration camps, they thought, oh, we've heard this before. This is just a, a lie again. So I'm wondering, you know, how much 
public, you know, as somebody said, I can't remember if it was Eric or Chris, how much powder are we using up when we say, like, scare the shit as, you know, as a philosopher slash physicist friend of mine, Phil, said the yesterday, he said, like, you know, here in Quebec, we have scared the living shit out of people and told them they need to socially distance and, you know, stay at home and all this stuff. How do you scare the shit out of people and then suddenly tell them, oh, yeah, we're going to reopen everything now. So, I mean, it's just it's a very odd, odd case. I mean, like, how, how do we mix these things? So, look, I, I think it's important to at least acknowledge that the data we got at the very beginning of all of this, it was very reasonable to scare the shit out of people. We were looking at 4%, 5% fatality numbers coming out of China and, and coming out of, of um, Italy. What we were seeing what looked really, really bad. And I don't think it, I, I don't, I, look, I don't think, we should be downplaying that. Um, and so if, if I'm a political leader and you come out and say, look, this looked really, really bad. And our first response is to protect people from something that looks really horrible. And now after we've been able to see it play out for eight weeks or so, it turns out that it, it doesn't look as horrible as we thought. And so now let's figure out how to deal with this. We need to be sensible about this. Um, and so I think that was, I think that's okay, right? I, I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to say the data we had before looked really scary and we took appropriate measures when we had that. But the data we have now makes this look significantly less scary. And so we're going to respond appropriately to that. I don't see why that's a problem for a political leader or anyone to come out and say that when it's when it's driven by data. The real problem is is when you find yourself in a position where you're where what the the, the, the position you're taking um, isn't driven by data. It's driven by partisan politics, which doesn't seem to be as much of a problem in Canada uh, as it as it appears to be in the United States. You know, given that you've got people on both sides in the U.S. that have really dug in their heels on this. I think it's going to be very difficult to, to walk back on some of this and, and, and for folks on the left, for instance, to say, you know, Trump and those people may have been right about this or in the fall, if they open it up and things flare up again, for then folks on the right to say, ooh, you know, the folks on the left may have been right about this. We probably should have been more cautious. But again, I think all these decisions can be driven by data. I don't think the initial reaction was a problem. I think it needed to be taken seriously, and it was taken seriously. Now we've got eight weeks of data, and we could make different decisions. And I think that that's that's where we should be on a, on on crises like this. Yeah, I just want to I just want to add one tiny little bit to that, which is I think one of the things that's unfortunate about all this is that, and I'm, I'm going to pick on you a little bit here, Chris. I, I think it's unfortunate that this then now has to become a debate about was this is, is this really bad or not? Was Trump right that this isn't really bad or not? 
that's irrelevant at this point. Look, this is bad. This is a bad virus. This is going to kill a lot of people. It's bad. I don't think that's really, you know, debate debatable. Uh, but we have to go back and look at what are the strategies that we're discussing and what are their, like, what are they actually intended to do and what can they actually reasonably accomplish? And we have to go back and remember that the thing that we thought we could reasonably accomplish was protecting the healthcare system. Uh, nobody ever thought that we could, nobody that I, that I think, you know, has thought this through in a reasonable way thinks that this is a mechanism by which we can just make the virus go away. Uh, so this doesn't have to be a debate about whether Trump was right that this is just like the flu or whether liberals were right that it was really serious. This can be a simple, much more straightforward question. This is a bad virus. It's very serious. It's worse than the flu. I think we all know that now. Uh, but the question is, what mechanisms are available to us right, to mitigate it? And I don't think sensible people believe that there's a mechanism available to us where we just lock down and wait for it to go away. Um, so it just doesn't have to be a debate about whether Trump was right or liberals were right or whatever. This can be a debate about whether we have at our disposal now, right now, given what we know, uh, mechanisms that do any good. Yeah, no, Eric, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that one of the things that sensible people seem to agree on across the board is that uh, it's really important for our response to this and the impact of whatever that response is that we make sure that it's not worse than the disease itself, right? And so when we think that the disease might kill four to 5% of the people who get it and present all sort of long-term harms to people who get it, you know, the cure of lockdowns does not look worse than the disease. But as we get more data, and it seems like it's not as, as harmful as that, now the cure of lockdown seems to be doing, you know, it, it seems to be at a point where it may be worse than the disease. And so that, I agree with you. That's not a political question. And, and my hope is that we can keep, you know, going forward, the national discussion, at least in the U.S., and again, I, I think it's different in Canada, but the national discussion, at least in the U.S., hopefully won't be politicized in the way that you and I have been hoping that is, you know, that it gets avoided. Um, another question, which, you know, I, I don't want to get into this too much, but um, there has been a problem in Canada, and I've spoken to friends in China and in Germany and in Italy about this, that some of the tests are, well, they're not accurate. So you can get false positives. Um, you can get false negatives. So the idea that somehow it's just about testing, well, the, the tests are not necessarily all good. So um, when the dust settles on this, it may turn out that that this disease was around much earlier than we thought, that it was much more prevalent than we thought. Uh, it may turn out that people we know Maybe even some of us had it, and we didn't realize it. I'm wondering how how you all sort of factor this in. So, so uh, yeah, let me jump in on this. I, I think um, reports of the inaccuracy of the testing have been exaggerated a little bit. Uh, 
so you know, for example, the 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 serological study that they did at Stanford in Santa Clara County, you know, everybody jumped all over that, but um, they they ran that test on 400 samples of blood from before the uh, from before the epidemic started, and they got two false positives on it. The new the new test that Roche has developed, the new serial a serum antibody test that Roche has developed. Uh, they've tested that on thousands of uh, samples now, and they claim it has a 99.8% specificity. That what that means, right, is that if you um, if you did not if you've never had coronavirus, it only has two chances in a thousand of saying that you've had it. Okay, so that's pretty damn good. Um, and that and and as that kind of test becomes available, uh, and we go and we look at we look at various populations, if we come here to San Diego and we use that test uh, to de- try to determine how many people in San Diego have already been exposed to the virus, it's going to give us pretty accurate information. So I do think, uh, you know, um, that situation has changed quite a bit in the last few weeks. It's getting, uh, we're getting much more. So I think the tests were in place a few weeks ago that were good, but we didn't really know it yet. Now the tests are in place and we know that they're good. Um, I think it's 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 not going to be too long. So part of, I think part of the problem was the 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 response to the Stanford study was so savage that um, people who are doing these studies now, particularly in the United States, uh, want to be extra 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 careful that they're dotting their eyes and crossing their t's on the statistics and everything. But I'll be surprised if four weeks from now we don't have um, a pretty accurate picture. Uh, of what the degree of infection is, uh, in va- at least in various places around the world. Um, as far as like when the virus got here, you know, we're pushing the envelope back on that a little bit. Uh, I think we now know that there was uh, a confirmed death in California that was community acquired in very early February. I don't think people believe that was possible until pretty recently. I think we know it's, it was in France now in late December. Uh, so you know, it might have been. It might have been uh, rather than not getting here until February. It might have been as early as November, because that makes a big difference to what we think uh, the rate of spread is, since that means it may have been spreading a little bit more slowly than we thought. But but I, but I'm, I think I'm pretty confident that we're going to have uh, some pretty good, reliable uh, serological testing that's going to give us a reasonably good picture of uh, what the what the degree of infection looks like, if not in the next four weeks and certainly two months. Yeah. And on, on that point, one thing we really have to worry about is like, why, why was it like the government and governments around the world doing this kind of testing earlier? So something that like Eric and Chris and I stress is it's one thing to say in an abundance of precaution, we're going to take pretty dramatic steps to try to protect people when we admit our ignorance, which they didn't really do. But if we admit our ignorance, admit that we're acting cautiously, admit that like it might turn out that we didn't need to do what we did. That's one thing, right? And we can talk about whether that was justified. And there's some arguments that it might, maybe in an abundance of precaution, it was. But what you'd expect is that governments, you know, having to discharge their responsibility to the people, having to discharge their responsibility to restrict people's liberties in any significant way, would engage in mass representative but random testing to find out how prevalent something is. Because again, Everybody knows that the case fatality rate is a high estimate of the actual fatality rate. It's unlikely that the sampling bias would go the other way. 
So if we get a CFR of 3.4%, we know that the actual number of people who die from it is under 3.4%. But we don't know how much. It could be a little bit. It could be a dramatic amount. So why weren't governments taking it upon themselves to open up a blood bank and that with a bunch of blood they have reason to think is not infected with the virus and run some serological tests to get an estimate of the false positive rate and then start randomly sampling people all around the country, trying to get a representative sample and sampling people even in hot spots and try to get a random sample. Uh, and then like get an estimate of how prevalent the disease is. So the government can say, look, now we've done our job. We've got a much better idea of like how, how dangerous this is, how prevalent it is and so on. Um, we're not going to rely upon even like brilliant epidemiologists at Stanford. We're going to like do it as the government. And this is our best estimate and then we'll make appropriate responses. But instead you get, we're just going to clamp down and we're just going to keep, you know, deferring to science. We say, we're going to move the justificatory goalposts so that whatever the current evidence is, we're just going to uh, come up with a new story about why our current policies are the best. It was a massive display of government incompetence and government failure. And as a person who is not known for liking the government very much and who writes about government failure, I'm surprised to say that, you know, I overestimated them. I thought they would be better than this. Just to, just to, just to add a little bit to what Jason said, right? So, I mean, we, there were two failures. There was, you know, the one he mentioned that we could have been doing, we could have been estimating the, the reliability of the serological test much earlier than we had, and we could have been administering those tests. But even before the, the antibody testing was available, we could have been out there testing live infection, right? But there was, there was never any random live infection testing. The closest thing we ever came to that was uh, when that paper came out a few weeks ago um, that there were a few physicians in New York City that were uh, live, live testing all of the women that came in uh, to deliver babies and, and found that, you know, in, in very late March, 15% of them were testing positive for live infection. And then, of course, also we've had, you know, a few places like um, uh, Navy ships or cruise ships or whatever where everybody was systematically tested. But why was there not immediately, right, starting in, in mid-February, why were we not, you know, uh, and people will, will often say, oh, but there was, you know, there was a finite amount of testing capacity. But that's just, you know, that's crazy. We've tested like 10 million people at this point. I'm talking about, you know, saving five, seven, eight, ten thousand of those tests to just do some live testing to figure out who's actually infected right now. Um, uh, nobody ever did this. Now I know this would, you know, it's it's hard to do random testing on people. You've got to like grab people on the street and ask them if they mind having a Q-tip shoved up their throat or nose. But um, you know, compared to locking people out of their jobs and giving them tickets for being on the beach and whatever else. I don't, I don't really understand why we were not out there with Q-tips um, very early on figuring out how many people in various places uh, were infected. Well, and let me add that this goes to Jason's point of um, the, the government mismanaging this. When we spent in the U S nearly $2 trillion on this, the first stimulus package and as best as I can tell, there was almost nothing in there um, that was money being spent to do mass testing, right? If, if mass testing is what you need to move forward, how do you spend $2 trillion without allocating really any of that 
to mass testing. And so that that's the sort of stuff where I look at this and I just I sort of scratch my head and think this is this is a failure all around that I can understand the immediate reaction. If folks want to say overreaction, I'm, I'm not I won't I don't think we have to, to go there. But as soon as you make that move to lock things down, the first thing you need to be doing is allocating a ridiculous amount of resources to massive testing and the sorts of things you need to do to get the data to otherwise make intelligent decisions. And here they simply didn't do that. And to me, that's that's a huge problem. And that's a failure from, from both of our political parties and everyone making those decisions. And it gives me pause when you think about what sorts of powers or what sorts of freedoms you want to give up to this entity that that is is not just you know wanting to lock people down, but then the the blunders after that, it, it gives me a great deal of pause before I would want to support any other any other policies that would give them more power over people when they haven't shown responsibility with the power that they have currently right now. I was um, this random random thing. I, I live close to Mount Royal in um, Montreal, which is a ancient volcano at the middle of our island city. And um, I've been taking walks on the mountain in the early mornings or late at night, like really late at night, just so that I can avoid all the cops and all the various people policing time. And I I had this this experience um, the other day, which totally made me think of Jason Brennan. I was um, on the mountain at around, this must have been at around like, I don't know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And I was walking to the top of the mountain to take my walk. And there was about, I, I would say like about 20, maybe as much as 30 teenagers who had gotten together on the mountain. And they were just like, running around on a warm night um, in May, um, just running around the mountain like like wild humans and, you know, live free or die. And they were, <laughs> they were just having a lot of fun and, you know, clearly flouting the, like, social distancing rules and all the other rules that our governments have in place at the moment. And you know, I kept my distance from them, but I, I remember I, I called my wife and I said, uh, I don't know how much longer this quarantine is going to last. I mean, like this is when you see the uh, the teenagers sort of bucking the rules, like it seems like lots of other people will be next. It seemed interesting to me that I just, it, it seemed like it was happening in, in all over the world at roughly the same time. So right around the same time you were seeing that on Mount Royal, there was that stuff happening in Paris where there was a guy, you know, DJing out of his window and in the, and people were having sort of a big block party there. People in, in California here were just starting to go to the beach and start surfing again, even though they weren't supposed to be. Uh, so it just really seemed like people reached a breaking point on this around the world at roughly the same time. I thought it was kind of interesting. It, the sort of policy upshot for all of this is we we kind of criticize the 
the argument that intellectuals are inclined to make is like, what would be the optimal policy if we assume that the power given to the government will be used competently and in good faith and that there will be perfect compliance by the citizenry. And when you do that kind of reasoning, you're taking it easy on yourself. You're doing arithmetic when you should be doing multivariable calculus. A good policymaker is somebody who says, or good policy argument is one that says, what policy would be best given how in fact competent and what the actual level of good faith is among the government. And actually given what level of compliance we will actually see among the citizenry when we know that people engage in strategic non-compliance, that they might just simply not be willing to support a measure for certain amounts of time because they get sick of it, where we know that people might not understand a rule, where we might know that all these other compliance problems can arise, or they could free ride and so on. And so the, the level of discussion of policy was conducted at what you might call ideal theory and philosophy, uh, but it wasn't done at the level of political economy. We were getting a good analysis of what to do given how people actually behave. So that's an intellectual failure as well. And because policies are implemented on this basis, it becomes a political failure, not just an intellectual failure. Well, and there's something else to add here, too, in terms of how people actually behave. We could imagine if, if the governments of, of your provinces or the governments of the states in the U.S. Uh, tomorrow decided that there was no more a lockdown. Right, you're still going to have a lot of people. The vast majority of people are not going to want to, to fly in airplanes. They're not going to want to go to the movies. They're not going to want to go to concerts. They're not going to want to do all of the sorts of normal life things that they were doing three to four months ago. I mean, the, the airplanes are a great example. The airplanes are still operating in the U.S. and no one is flying them. Right. And so one of the things that the advantage of, say, ending the lockdown formally is that you allow individual, call them broadly entrepreneurs, to figure out how to respond and address reasonable concerns in this situation we're dealing with right now where people are reasonably afraid of, of going out. And I would much rather have a lot of individual business owners, of individual service providers, figuring out how to provide goods and services that people want instead of the government unilaterally figuring out how it should be done. And so even if you believe that it's not safe for people to be venturing out right now, you can still get behind a view that says, look, it's not safe. Let's leave it up to individuals to figure out how do we reopen things so that people can get back to some semblance of a normal life. Uh, and I think that's got to be the goal here, no matter what your view is on this. How do we get back to some semblance of a normal life? And in practice, what's the best way to do that? Do we rely on the central government to make those decisions or do we rely on individuals and, and individual entrepreneurs to figure out how to serve people and how to provide goods given these reasonable concerns? And I think that's something that's also not being discussed enough now either. Thank you to all of you. Uh, Chris, that was fantastic. Um, that is probably the, uh, the, the best closing point for all of us. Um, thank you so much. Uh, we will send you this when it goes out. And thank you so much. Take care. Bye for now. Don't die. Thanks for having us on. We'll do our best. Take, take it easy. Thanks. Thanks, everybody.